All right, good morning, everybody. Thank you for uh, being here with me this morning. Um, to start off with, I think I may need a new battery for the advancer. All right. All right, so uh, disclosures. I'm a consultant, uh, contractor with uh, advisory board member for several of these different companies. Um, and learning objectives. So we have uh, several different learning objectives for uh, the presentation. Um, actually, Enrique, I do need some batteries. I'm just advancing it manually. Um, a couple of learning objectives for today's talk. Uh, one is one to help you guys be able to identify, understand what motivational interviewing is. And then number two, develop an awareness of how motivational interviewing can be used in patient interactions. Oh, it always helps when you turn the power switch on, right? <laughs> so operator error. All right. Thank you, Enrique. So in chronic pain management, we know that there, there are very broad differences between acute and chronic pain. Um, in acute pain, the pain that a person experiences, the hurt that a person experiences, is associated with some sort of active harm occurring in the body, right? So, for example, if your hand touches a burner or a stove, you're going to feel pain. That's going to be a warning sign to remove your hand away from that burner to prevent more damage from occurring to your body. If your hand continued to rest in that burner, you would end up feeling pain, but you would also have some pretty significant harm that occurs to the body. Uh, acute pain oftentimes has a very clear cause, right? In that example of the burner, the cause is my hand touching a hot burner. But the treatment course is pretty clearly prescribed. There's oftentimes a clear treatment path, and the treatment path is going to result in an elimination of the pain symptoms that a person's experiencing. Right? But in the case of chronic pain, it's a markedly different beast. In chronic pain, we number one, the pain that a person experiences is not a sign of active harm occurring in the person's body. Right? It may be related to some injury that occurred at a previous time, the pain is absolutely real. It's not something that's made up or manufactured by the person. It's a very real experience, but it's not a sign that there's active harm occurring that requires some sort of immediate action to prevent more harm from occurring. So, for example, as you guys are sitting in the audience, you may be experiencing, if you have chronic low back pain, your back may be hurting as you're sitting here, right? That doesn't mean that there's a part of your body that's in immediate harm's way that requires some immediate action to prevent more harm from occurring. That's just a part of that chronic condition. Um, Oftentimes with chronic pain, the cause is ambiguous and it can be multifactorial. So first, the ambiguous part. We can give a chronic pain condition a name. We can say that somebody has fibromyalgia, somebody has complex regional pain syndrome. But just because we name the condition doesn't mean that we understand why it is that it exists. Meaning, if we take two people that have the exact same mechanism of injury, why is it that one person goes on and develops chronic pain but the other person doesn't? Right? We don't know why. We know that there's a wide range of factors that predispose a person for chronic pain, but predisposition and cause are two completely different things. Right? That second piece, the multifactorial piece, we know that regardless of what type of pain a person has or how long it's been present, we know that different substances, different stressors, different emotional states can all influence and intensify that pain. Uh, this is especially true with chronic pain, but we don't see that relationship as much with acute pain. But then lastly, when we get to the treatment course, we don't have a fix or a cure for chronic pain. So the approach that we take to chronic pain is a management approach, where we try to help patients learn how to live with this condition, you know, helping them learn how to maximize their quality of life, maximize their functioning, despite the fact that this condition is present. So helping patients learn to live with pain is a goal of management, but that's the same approach we take with any kind of chronic health condition that doesn't have a cure. 
diabetes, asthma, heart disease. We don't have a way to rectify or eliminate those things, but rather we focus on helping with disease management so that people can have full lives. But when patients hear this, right, that, well, we want to help you learn how to manage your condition, sometimes patients might think, manage it? Well, that's just a nice way of saying suck it up and deal with it. And I've actually had many patients come to me and say that that's what they hear when they hear a clinician say managing their condition. So what exactly do we mean by managing pain? Well, let's say that this square represents your life, right? You're flying into Las Vegas for this conference. You sit next to somebody in the airplane. They ask you about your life. What are the things that you talk about that, that fill your life, that give your life meaning? Children. Children. What else? Leisure. Leisure activities. I heard somebody mention work. What else? Religion. Okay, religion, hobbies, work, vacations, entertainment. All of these things are the things that give us quality of life. These are the things that fill our life and give our life meaning, right? One day, a pain condition sets in, right? And it takes center stage because it's something that's new, it's something that's foreign, um, and it demands a lot of attention. And initially, pain starts off as an acute process. And so people get medical workups, they try different treatment modalities to try to address it, but they still have space in their life for all these other things, even though this pain has taken center stage. Over the course of time, this pain starts to evolve into a chronic condition. It transitions from that acute process to something more chronic. And as that happens, it starts to radiate out and overshadow other aspects of a person's life to the point where those other things start to disappear. Right? And we start to see people have decreased activity levels. People start to pull away from meaningful social or leisure activities. Right? We see that people aren't engaged in the, the social family activities. We see increased work absenteeism. We see increase in affective distress. You know, people start to exhibit signs and symptoms of depression, anxiety. Um, sleep disturbances can oftentimes come about. We find that people may have a hard time falling asleep, staying asleep, or getting a restful night's sleep. And the sleep issues can come about either because of the pain condition, because of the affective distress, or because of the treatment that they're receiving for their pain condition or their affective distress. Um, People can have increased number of doctor office visits, right? It's not uncommon for me to hear patients say that the uh, most significant activity that they have on a week-to-week basis is going to medical office visits. Uh, interpersonal problems develop. This certainly makes sense. As a person is pulling away from meaningful life activities, not engaging in uh, things with family or with work, they can start to have conflict in their interpersonal relationships. And then lastly, physical deconditioning can start to occur. As a person's not using their bodies or not moving their body, they can start to get deconditioned. And we're not talking about just the parts of their body affected by their pain, but they can start to experience more global deconditioning. And as that starts to happen, it further adds to these different things. People start to pull that much more away from activities, and cycles start to evolve. But again, this starts to overshadow the person's life, where now you talk to a person with chronic pain, and you ask them about their life, and instead of talking about their leisure activities, religion, family, vacations, things along those lines, now you hear them talking about medical procedures. You hear them talking about a new drug that they're going to try, a new physician that they have an appointment with, uh, imaging studies that they have coming up, or you hear them talking about the pain condition itself. So no longer are they telling the story of their life, but they're telling the story of the pain's life. But it's easy to understand how this transition has occurred because of the way that the pain is, again, overshadowed everything. So the goal in helping patients learn to live with pain or learning to manage pain 
is to decentralize the role of pain in their life. Eliminate a lot of this distress that's been caused by the pain to give them the space so that they can do the things that are meaningful for them. Do you think that's easy? To help people go from this to this? I'll take that silence as a resounding no, right? So it's not easy, right? If it was easy, then we'd just give patients a printed set of instructions with a post-it note on top of it that said good luck and send them on their way, right? But it's immensely challenging to help patients get to a point where they're able to do this. But part of what this entails is addressing how a patient is coping with their situation. All of these things that are here, how a person's engaged or not engaged in activity levels, the affective distress that they have, sleep disturbances, uh, doctor office visits, interpersonal conflicts, all these things relate to how a person is coping with their pain condition. And oftentimes, the coping strategies are things that evolve early on in the pain condition and continue to get shaped uh, over the course of time that somebody is living with pain. And so we find that some of the reactions that people have may initially be adaptive. So again, we know that pain starts off as an acute phenomenon, and then it evolves into something that's more chronic. But when the pain is first there, when a person doesn't know what's going on in their body, avoidance of activity may actually be something adaptive, right? Or if their condition started with some sort of accident or injury, uh, the avoidance behaviors may actually serve some function of allowing their body to try to heal. But over the course of time, as their, their body is healed but the pain persists, even though the tissue injury has, is no longer there, that response pattern of avoidance can start to evolve where we start to see things like a fear avoidance cycle develop, where a person pulls away from engaging in activity out of fear that it's going to cause more harm to their body or fear that they're going to experience more pain. But the beauty of these things is that all of these behaviors, all of these coping strategies are learned behaviors, right? And so what that means is if these coping strategies or responses are learned, they can be unlearned or they can be relearned in a healthier fashion. So one of the ways that I like to depict this to patients is if you think about, your, think about a computer, if you think about your body as being the hardware and your coping strategies or your mind, your thought processes, these are all the software, right? We can reprogram the software. It may take some time, and as we do it, we may get some bugs and error messages, but we are capable of reprogramming that software, even if we've had some damage to the hardware, right? And then what we do know is that optimum pain management requires Getting to this place requires learning and applying adaptive coping strategies and changing some of the behaviors that we have around pain. But where do these behaviors come from? You know, all of these coping strategies, as I mentioned, are learned behaviors. So I want to talk about a couple of the different theories of learning that we have to help you better understand the process of change uh, within us as human beings. So there's, there's a lot of different theories of learning. I'm going to focus on just two of the different learning theories that I feel are most relevant to uh, motivational interviewing and behavioral change in the context of pain. So first, we'll talk about a type of learning called classical conditioning or associative learning. Does that ring a bell for anybody in here? Okay. Yeah, I'm not very funny, but so thank you for, for laughing at that. So classical conditioning was first identified by Ivan Pavlov. And so... Pavlov was stating the digestive processes in dogs, and what he did was whenever it was time to feed a dogs, he would ring a bell to get the dogs to come to him, and the dogs would come in and he'd give them their, their food. What he found was, over the course of time, whenever he'd ring the bell, the dogs would come to him and the dogs would already be salivating just by hearing the bell. And so what had happened is the dogs had learned to associate the bell with the presentation of food, right? A bell ringing isn't something that should naturally elicit salivation in an animal, right? 
presentation of food is something that would naturally elicit salivation in an animal. And so the dogs had learned to associate those two naturally unrelated stimuli, the ringing of the bell and the presentation of food, with each other, so that the stimulus of ringing the bell now produces this particular response, right? And so that's, that's classical conditioning. And I apologize for the graphic, especially the dog. The dog is kind of freaky. Uh, but I just, I had to try to find like public domain images. And so that's the best, the best dog I could find. So I apologize for that. I, if any of you are traumatized, um, I apologize. I was traumatized just for making this slide. Um, but again, what we see is that the ringing of the bell eventually elicits that, uh, that response of the salivation. But we can see classical conditioning occurring in the context of pain and pain coping as well. So let's say that a person avoids engaging in act- let's say let's, let's say that a person starts to engage in activity because they say you know what I really need to do stuff with family that was something that was important to me I'm going to go to to little Jenny's softball game right that's something that's important family's important so I'm going to go do it they go do it but they also overextended themselves that day they took on a bunch of other chores that they that they were putting off they did those things in the morning by the time they got to Jenny's softball game uh, they were just completely wiped out right they may make an association in their mind of, I can't do family activities because it just causes me too much pain, right? So they start to make an association between activity and pain. And so this starts to become reinforced where they start to avoid activity as a means of avoiding that pain. Another model of learning is operant conditioning. And this was uh, pioneered by B.F. Skinner. And so in operant conditioning, what we see is a, a system of rewards and punishments that serve to either reinforce or extinguish particular behaviors. And so anything that is a reinforcement is something that's going to increase a behavior. And so there's things that are positive reinforcement. Positive reinforcement is when anything is added to the environment to increase the likelihood of a behavior occurring. You know, so let's say that you're a facility, you work at a facility that uses Prescani scores for patient satisfaction. And if you're told that uh, every time you cross a certain threshold in your press gainy scores, you're going to get a salary bonus, right? That's an example of positive reinforcement. Something is being added uh, to your life, financial incentive, to increase the likelihood of behavior, which is getting uh, higher press gainy scores. An example of negative reinforcement is when something is taken away from an environment to increase the likelihood of behavior. A lot of times people think negative reinforcement is punishment, but that's not the case. Anytime we have the word reinforcement, that's something that's increasing the likelihood of behavior. So using that same Prescani example, if you're told that we're going to decrease your patient volume uh, every time you reach a certain threshold in your Prescani satisfaction scores, that's an example of negative reinforcement. Uh, something aversive, a very high patient load, is being taken away to reinforce the behavior of having higher scores. Uh, anything that's done to decrease behaviors, or excuse me, Lack of reinforcement and punishment are ways that we decrease behaviors. So if we just stop reinforcing a particular thing, so if we don't reinforce like the Prescani scores, we stop giving that incentive, there's a possibility that those behaviors may get extinguished over the course of time. But also we can introduce punishment. And punishment is where there's some sort of adverse stimuli that's introduced to decrease the frequency of a particular behavior occurring. And so, you know, back in the day of corporal punishment, this might be like if somebody were to get hit or something along those lines to try to decrease the frequency of a behavior. So we see this, again, also in the context of pain. Um, We can see that pain, if a person is experiencing uh, pain in doing a particular activity and they decide to stop doing that activity, 
the absence of pain has become a negative reinforcement to reinforce pulling away from activities. And so this is basically increasing the likelihood that they're not going to engage in particular behaviors. And so we see this quite frequently. And what you start to see is that these different theories of learning aren't mutually exclusive from one another, right? That these things overlap with each other, that we have aspects of operant conditioning, aspects of classical conditioning that meld together, which makes this that much more entrenched within us. So what are some of the different modifiable behaviors that we have that address our uh, coping? Well, movement and guarding. You know, when a person's got pain, there's a tendency to guard the parts of their body that are affected by pain. Um, A lot of that guarding doesn't necessarily serve an adaptive purpose, but it's a behavior that's learned. That guarding process, though, can cause problems where there can be disuse of the muscles affected by chronic pain, and so a person may start to experience atrophy in the part of their body. Um, or it can lead to disuse, or excuse me, uh, overcompensation in other muscle groups. Activity patterns. You know, we might find that patients engage in a boom-bust pattern of activities where they do a lot and then they're paying for it, which certainly isn't adaptive to having any kind of sustainability in activities. Uh, sleep behaviors. How people respond to stressors in their environment. Um, not just how they respond in terms of their, their cognitive responses, but their physiologic responses as well. Pain behaviors, both the verbal and nonverbal expressions of pain are modifiable behaviors. And substance use, you know, not just things like opioids and alcohol, but looking at all the substances that can affect pain, caffeine, nicotine, illicit substances. All of these things are behaviors and patterns of interaction with our environment that are learned, and therefore they can be unlearned or relearned. But what we have to do is we have to make sure that a patient is motivated to make these changes. The challenge in modifying some of these pain-related behaviors is that pain, and more specifically fear of pain, is an extremely powerful reinforcement. You know, fear is a very powerful motivator, and that's why when we find people in that fear-avoidance cycle, or they avoid engaging in activities because of fear of pain or fear of hurting themselves, it can be a very challenging thing to break. Because we know that the experience of pain is always going to be there, and especially if a person is hypervigilant and waiting for that pain to be there, there's a higher likelihood that they will experience that pain, or they're going to be more preoccupied and notice any nuance or any small symptom that is present. So a pain, fear can be a very powerful reinforcement that's difficult to overcome. Other factors that are difficult in modifying pain-related behaviors is the presence of secondary gain. Um, if somebody's receiving or if somebody's on disability, uh, there may be secondary gain from disability. If somebody has a really challenging work environment, they don't like their work, and they're on uh, short-term disability not having to go to work, well, there's a reinforcement there of not to get better because they're being able to escape that aversive uh, stimulus. Also, our pain-related behaviors tend to be very deeply entrenched. Again, these things get learned at multiple levels and get reinforced in multiple ways, and so it's not as easy as just saying, well, this is something unhealthy that you're doing. You should try to change it, right? Also, making changes is very effortful, right? These things aren't easy to do, and having somebody who's living with pain expend more effort to modify behaviors is a very complex perspective, or a very complex thing to ask them to do, and it's difficult to ask them to do that, and especially because the process of change can actually cause more stress and pain as you're going through it. So to conceptualize how we help people go through the stage, go through change, there's different stages that we have people go through. The first stage is a pre-contemplation stage. And this is where a person has no 
recognition that any of their behaviors need to change. They are living their life. They don't really have any insight into the fact that there needs to be any kind of modification. So this is a person who comes into the office and says, you know, doc, just give me my meds. That's the only thing that works for me. I'm not interested in anything else. Just please write me the prescription and let me go, right? And so these are folks that are in the pre-contemplation state. You know, they may have low levels of activity. They may be stuck in that cycle that I showed you earlier where they have low activity, increased affective distress, um, deconditioning, all those different things, but they're not really even aware of the fact that these things are going on or, or willing to look at how they may address those factors. Contemplation is the next stage. And this is when a person has moved beyond, beyond this and they recognize, you know what, something maybe needs to change, right? They're a little bit more ambivalent. There's parts of them that recognize something needs to change, but parts of them that keep them grounded in not making any changes. Preparation is when somebody is finally committed to making a change in their behaviors. Action is when they're actively engaged in making those changes. And maintenance is after the changes occurred, what they do to continue with maintaining those gains that they have. So our job as clinicians is to help our patients successfully move through these different stages of change, particularly when we find them in that maladaptive state. So helping people move from pre-contemplation to contemplation can be challenging, right? But what this involves is a fair amount of education. You know, you want to start to lay the groundwork here and expose a patient to the biopsychosocial model, introduce them to the role that psychological factors, physical factors, social factors play in the experience of pain, and you're just providing a lot of education. You're not directing the patient, you're not telling them that they need to do X, Y, or Z. You're not necessarily even putting referrals out for them to go work with a psychologist or things along those lines, but just starting to educate the patient to help them understand. There's gonna be a lot of resistance at this stage. Um, the resistance is gonna be strong, because again, the patient doesn't perceive there's anything wrong with what they're doing. But what you want to do to try to help move the patient to that contemplation state is you want to try to ask questions that help the patient start to get a sense of how effective is what I'm doing. So asking questions such as, how are things working out for you? You know, what are your activity patterns like? You know, asking open-ended questions that kind of look at what the person's functionality is, right? So somebody says, my medications are the only thing that works for me. Well, what are some of the activities that you're doing? You know, oh, have you, have you returned back to work yet, right? Starting to point out some of the different things that, that, are per, that may be important in that person's life um, and see if there's discrepancies in those different types of things. But just, you're not necessarily pointing out those discrepancies. You're just asking questions so that the patient can start to become aware of those things on their own because you're going to end up using some of those discrepancies later on to try to help affect a change. So... Once a patient starts to recognize that, you know what, there's a discrepancy here between what I want in my life and where I actually am, that's when they start to move into this contemplation state, um, where they recognize that change needs to occur and they need to take some sort of action to make that happen. And as we move patients between these stages of contemplation, preparation, and action, this is where motivational interviewing starts to come in. And we focus on motivation because Motivation is what really drives our behavior, right? It's the, the core of what causes us to do the things that we do. There's two types of motivation. There's extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. Extrinsic is when it's something external to us that drives us, and intrinsic is when it's something within ourselves. Which one do you think is a more powerful agent of change? Intrinsic, right? And that makes more sense. When there's something that 
we're more motivated to do, there's a better likelihood that that change process will actually stick versus if the motivation's coming from somebody else, right? Motivation's a biopsychosocial experience. It's shaped by biological factors. It's shaped by our psychological experiences and the social context in which we're in. But we know that motivation can enhance learning. The more motivated a person is, the more likely that they're going to immerse themselves in learning the new coping strategies, the more likely that they're going to try to work on implementing these things in their life. So in motivational interviewing, what we're trying to accomplish is not making a patient change or convincing them that they need a change, but rather we're trying to elicit the patient's own intrinsic motivation to change and using that as a vehicle to help them get through those stages of change, help them move from that contemplation into action and maintenance, but not because they're relying on something that's directed by you. It's much more driven by the patient. Because if it's driven by you, right, where you're providing all the education, you're telling them all the reasons why they need a change, what type of motivation is that now? It's extrinsic, right? So the likelihood that that change will be sustained is a little bit lower. Not impossible, but it's going to be lower. But we know that if the motivation comes from within the person, there's going to, it's going to be a bit more robust. And so in motivational interviewing, we try to elicit the patient's motivation as a driver for their own change. And so this is a counseling approach that was initially applied to addressing drinking behavior. And it's just that. This isn't a technique that we do. This isn't something that you say, I'm going to try inter motivational interviewing today. But it's really an approach to communication that's applied uh, across the board in your sessions, in your appointments with the patient. Um, it helps reduce patient's ambivalence. And so again, when a patient's in that contemplative state, there are parts of them that recognize change needs to occur, but there are other parts of them that are keeping them stuck. And so it's, when they're in that ambivalent place, helping them move into that space of change. And it has a very broad application in health settings. Motivational interviewing has been used uh, to help with smoking cessation, weight loss, alcohol use. And in a meta-analysis of 72 randomized controlled trials, they found evidence of effectiveness in 75% of the studies that were reviewed. So I'm going to spend some time going over several of the different components of motivational interviewing. Uh, there's four primary components, and we actually move back and forth between these different components as we work with patients. Um, the first is engaging. And when we're engaging with the patient, what we're focusing on is trying to build rapport with them. And in this state, you want to try to demonstrate empathy as much as possible. And we do this by reflective listening. Well, there's several ways we do it. One of them is by reflective listening. And what this is is by trying not to jump in and offer solutions to people. You don't want to give them a, a pathway of fixing their problem, but rather just reflecting back what you're hearing from them. So, for example, if somebody is talking about significant conflict in their marriage and they describe a, a horrific argument that they had with their significant other, instead of just jumping in and saying, well, have you guys considered marital counseling or trying to offer a different pathway, in reflective listening, you would just comment that, wow, that sounds really difficult, right? Or just commenting on the process of what you're hearing that person describe. You want to be non-judgmental. Uh, you don't want the patient to feel that you have some sort of judgment or perception of right or wrong in what that patient is experiencing or doing. And you want to communicate respect and acceptance of the patient's experience. And so all of this is, again, starting to build a relationship with that patient. You want the discussion that you have with them to have depth. It shouldn't be something that's just generic and superficial. And so with this, you want to use open-ended dialogue as much as possible. 
And so I have examples here of kind of different approaches to communication that exemplify closed communication approaches versus open-ended. So if you're talking to somebody about their approach to managing their pain, do you think your approach to managing your pain is working, right? Now, if you look at that question, that question, it can be asked in an abrasive way, but it can also be asked in a gentle way, right? Do you think that your approach is working? And somebody might think, you know what, there's, there's really nothing wrong with that question. But what it does is it pushes a patient into a forced choice because it's really kind of a, a yes or a no type of a question, right? And so it kind of shuts the patient down from describing more about what their experience of pain is like and how they're relating to things in their environment. It prevents you from understanding more about their broad coping. So something open-ended would be, tell me how your approach to managing pain is working for you, right? And that opens the door for the patient kind of explaining in a more broad range about all aspects of how they're managing their pain, but not forcing them into uh, a forced choice response. Do you take more medication than prescribed? Again, not only is this forced choice, but there may be some fear on the patient's part that there may be judgment. If the patient says, if the patient knows, you know what, every now and then I do take just one more than what I'm prescribed, I make sure I regulate it out for the rest of the month, but they may not feel comfortable disclosing that for fear that there may be judgment. So tell me about how you take your medications is a question that's it's the same way of getting the same information and you may get more honesty from the patient by asking it in that type of an open-ended fashion. Based on what we've discussed, don't you agree it would be a good idea to taper your opioids? Right? And again, that may sound like a logical conclusion after you've spent some time with the patient, but again, it's a forced choice type of response. So asking more open-ended, what are your thoughts on tapering your opioids? And especially with that type of a question, that's going to really introduce you to that ambivalence. You're going to hear the patient give you a lot of reasons why they should, and then they're going to give you a lot of reasons why they shouldn't. Right? And then this is, again, where we start to use the, this is part of that motivational strategy, motivational interviewing strategy is eliciting that ambivalence so that you can start to reinforce the healthier behaviors. So in focusing, you want to identify a clear goal or direction. And the goal or direction is, if it's in the case of opioids, that, okay, the goal might be that they want to taper their opioid medications. But you want to make sure that the process is collaborative in nature and that the goal is something that the patient has identified, not something that you've identified. You want to address what the barriers to change are, and then you want to start to develop more of that discrepancy. Help the patient start to become more aware of the gap between what their desired state is and where they are right now. So for example, the patient saying that, uh, and again, doing this in a non-judgmental way, um, Patient saying, I, I you know, wasn't able to go to, to little Peggy's softball game. You know, say, that must have been frustrating to you because I know one of your goals was to be able to be more engaged with family. You're not passing judgment, but you're reflecting back what that must be like emotionally for the patient, but at the same time pointing out the discrepancy between their active behaviors now and what their target goals are. And then in evoking, this is somewhat the, the core part of motivational interviewing is where we focus in on particular types of dialogue and language, where we reinforce the verbiage that patients give that moves them toward that target behavior. So you want to start to listen for what's called change talk or behavior that's moving the or dialogue that's moving the patient into the healthier behaviors. So listen for things that communicate a desire for change. When you hear a patient say, I want something, you know, I want to be more engaged with my family. Um, or when they say that they have a need for change. You know, I have to be able to uh, provide for my family. I have to get back to work. Or I can't 
constantly be sedated by my medications. They, they impair my ability to do the things that I need to do. Start listening for their rationale for change. When you start hearing things like if-then statements, if I continue on this pathway, I'm going to get fired from my job. If I continue like this, I don't see why my partner is going to stay with me. Start listening for those types of consequences that the patient is identifying on their own. And then listen for their dialogue about their ability to change. You know, think, for example, if you have a person who's become very deconditioned, who's pulled away from activity as they're engaging in this, this dialogue with you, they say, I don't walk, but, you know, I, I suppose I could maybe just do five minutes a day. That probably wouldn't kill me. Start listening for that type of dialogue. And what we do is, through a reflective process, help build the patient's sense of self-efficacy by reinforcing this type of dialogue when you hear it. And again, we see that patient who's in that ambivalent state where there's a part of them that wants to change, a part of them that doesn't. And by reinforcing this, these aspects of their communication, you're helping them move more toward that healthier behavioral change. And then once a patient has gotten into that state of preparation, you want to start planning, establish what the plan is going to be. What are they going to do to create a change? What are the barriers to putting this in place? And again, this should continue to be something that's collaborative in nature, where you're working with the patient to make these things happen. Motivational interviewing is a dynamic process. It's not linear. I'm describing these things step by step, but the reality is, is you may go back and forth. You may get resistance in the process. As a patient starts to get closer to making change, fear may come about and set them back a little bit. And so when that happens, you just go back to the rapport building process and start to reshift and try to help move the patient forward again. You want to try to avoid the tendency to correct the patient or give them answers themselves, but rather you want them to elicit it on their own. So a lot of motivational interviewing, it's, there's a lot of stuff I'm presenting that are, that are words on a slide, but I think it's best learned by being able to observe it um, in person. And so I had wanted to originally do an interactive example with somebody in the audience, but I thought you know, that starts to bring about too much of a person's personal experiences, and I didn't think that would be appropriate. And so I talked to Deborah about possibly just including videos in the presentation. And so I've got a couple of videos to illustrate motivational interviewing. And the first is a video of what not to do, right? And so these are examples of motivational interviewing applied to smoking cessation for the purposes of secondhand smoke. And this was done by uh, some folks at University of Florida with funding from the Flight Attendant Medical Research Institute. Uh, but I want you guys to watch this, and we'll talk about what you see uh, after the video. Doctors, nurses, and physician assistants all have opportunities to counsel patients about health-related behaviors. As a medical professional, you have a responsibility to talk to your patients about tobacco use and how it affects their health. At times, you will also have a responsibility to talk to them about how secondhand exposure to their tobacco smoke affects other people's health. These can be sensitive topics, and it is important to keep in mind that the way you approach your patients about these issues will have a big impact on how your advice and concerns are received. In general, it is not useful to confront or scold your patients about their tobacco habits, as that approach is usually not well received by patients and may interfere with your ability to counsel them effectively. Watch what happens as this provider becomes more and more confrontational in her warnings about tobacco use and her advice to quit smoking. Okay, so I wrote a prescription for an antibiotic for Aiden that should help with the ear infection, but in looking through the chart, I mean, it seems like he's had six or seven of these just in the past year or so. Yeah. 
that's really a big problem. Yeah, it, it's pretty stressful for both of us. I think it's really upset. Well, one of the primary risk mm -hmm. factors for multiple ear infections in kids is actually smoke exposure. Are you smoking? Yeah, I, yeah, I do smoke, but I don't smoke around him. I try really hard not to smoke around him. Well, the fact that he's having these ear infections is indicating to me that he is being exposed to smoke. And so what can you tell me about that? I, I don't know. I mean, I try really hard not to smoke around him. I don't smoke in the car. Um, when he's home, I go outside to smoke. I just, I mean, I know it's bad, and I know it's bad for him, so I don't want him to be around it, so I try really hard. I really need you to quit smoking, both for your health and for Aiden. Did you know s smoking around your child is associated not only with ear infections, it, it could get to the point where you have to put tubes in his ears pretty shortly here, also things like vitamin C deficiency, cavities, like dental cavities, behavior problems, uh, asthma, other upper respiratory infections. It's really putting him at a lot of risk. In addition to that, kids of smokers end up smoking themselves. Do you want him to grow up to be a smoker? No, but I don't smoke. I'm, I, I, I've thought about quitting, but it's just it's really hard, so I just don't know how to do it. Well, now's the time to quit. It's really gotten to the point where you can't keep smoking. Not only for him, like I said, but also for you. You're putting yourself at risk for lung cancer, for emphysema, for oral cancers, for heart disease, for all kinds of I things. I know, I know. I've heard. People have told me before I've heard all that. I just don't know how to do it. How am I supposed to quit? It's, it's so hard. Well, there's all kinds of things you can use now. It's not as hard as it used to be. You can use nicotine replacement. There's patches, there's lozenges, there's gum, there's the inhaler, there's nasal spray. We can talk about medications. You can try Chantix, you can try Zyban. There's quit smoking groups you can go to. There's hotlines you can call. Just don't there's, have time there's for no reason that. why you shouldn't be able to quit. This is really important. I understand that. I know it is. It's, I mean, everybody has problems, right? It's just really, it's really, really hard. Well, what can be more important to you than the health of your child? I really need you to tell me that you're going to quit smoking. This is really important. I'll, I'll, I'll go look at all those things, and, and I'll find, I guess I'll, I'll try to find something, and, and I'll talk to my doctor about it. Okay, well, I think you really need to think about this seriously. Like I said, it's really putting yourself and your child in danger. Okay. Whatever. Okay. Okay. All right. So what did you guys see in that? She kept getting more, her mom kept getting more with her on and then shutting herself off from the conversation. Yeah. Started pulling away more. What else did you see? Aggression. Yeah. The, the physician was being pretty aggressive, right? Her intentions may have been good, right? Wanting the best for her patient and for her, for her patient's kid. But it didn't come across that way, right? Yeah. So much stuff. I mean, again, there's a lot of good intention and there, you know, look at these options that you have, but it is overwhelming. And when you're already in that position, you feel like you're on the defensive and it's like, well, I can't give a good answer here. Right. Yeah.
So but very much shame-based, right? And, and that's not necessarily going to be a good motivator for, for change. And, you know, this certainly admittedly, you know, this was a demonstration that kind of showed something in a more aggressive fashion. And I certainly don't, I haven't seen people who are that aggressive all the time. But what we do see, what I have seen is little elements of different things that this physician was doing and some of the interactions I've seen with some of my physician and PPA colleagues where they may not have all of those different aspects in the work that they do with patients, but there's some elements that still come about. And so even if you say, oh, okay, well, I'm fine. I don't do those things, so I'm safe. If you find that there's some elements of that that you, you find yourself gravitating toward, you still may want to look and see, are there more effective ways that I might communicate with my patients to elicit some other behaviors from them? Right? So now we're going to look at the same situation, the same, the same physician and patient, uh, but using motivational interviewing, right? Where instead of the, patient, the physician driving the communication of change needing to occur, seeing how it can be a collaborative model using some of those different types of tools and strategies that we had talked about uh, just a few moments ago. Watch what happens this time when the provider cues into what the parent is saying, empathizes with her situation, and attempts to work with the parent to find a solution that fits her needs. So I wrote a prescription for antibiotics for Aiden. Okay. Um, I did want to talk to you, though. I'm a little bit concerned looking through his chart at how many ear infections he's had recently, and I, I noticed that you had checked the box that someone's smoking in the home, so I was wondering if you can tell me a little more about that. Well, um, it's just me and him, and I do smoke. Um, I try really hard not to smoke around him. But I, I've been smoking for 10 years, except when I was pregnant with him. But it, everything, it's so stressful being a single mom and, and my, having a full-time job. And so it's just, that's why I started smoking again. You have a lot of things going on, and smoking's kind of a way to relax and de-stress. Yes, yeah. Some people have a glass of wine, I have a cigarette. Sure. And it sounds like you're trying not to smoke around him. Why did you make that decision? I know it's not good for him. I mean, I've read those things about ear infections and asthma and stuff. And, and But other kids have ear infections, and their parents don't smoke. So on the one hand, you're worried about how your smoking might be affecting him. And on the other hand, you're not so sure if it's really the smoking that's causing these problems. Right, yeah. I mean, he doesn't have asthma. He, I don't, he hasn't had a lot of other problems that his other friends have so and I've thought about quitting before in the past but I just don't I just don't see how it's possible right now what made you decide to quit smoking when you were pregnant well he was inside me and we were sharing everything and I knew that he would get some of that and I didn't I just didn't didn't think I could live with myself if something happened to him right now though it feels almost too difficult to even manage or even to try yeah, exactly. How were you successful when you quit before? I don't know. I, I think about it now. I don't even know how I did it. I just, I just did it. You know, I just, I just couldn't imagine like him not being born or, or going into labor early and, mm -hmm. and him having problems and stuff like that, all the stuff that they talk about with women who smoke. So I, that was just enough to, to say, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to risk that. Mm -hmm. So the risks were so scary then that you're able to stop. And yeah. They don't feel as scary to you now. No, I mean we're two separate people, and like I said, I don't. I try really hard not to smoke around him. I'm pretty good about that. I I don't let other people smoke around him. Um, so I, you know, 
You're doing the best you can do. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But it sounds to me too like part of you really does want to quit. Yeah, I, I, I know that I need to and I, you know, keep every new year I say, okay, this year I'm going to quit smoking. But then something happens and it, it just doesn't. It's and on your to-do list. Happen. It's just not making it to the top. Yeah. If you did decide to quit, on a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is not at all confident, you don't think you could do it, and 10 is you feel pretty certain that you could, where do you think you fall right now? Probably like a 5. Kind of in the unsure area. Mm -hmm. Like, I know I've done it before, so I know I can do it. But at the same time, it just seems really hard, and sure. it's not the same situation. Well, what made you say 5 rather than 2 or 3? I know, I know all the ways it's bad for me, and I don't want him to grow up thinking that it's okay to smoke. I don't want him to, to use any kind of, I don't want him to chew or, or anything like that. Um, so I know I need to, especially before he gets old enough to understand mm -hmm. what mommy's doing, but I just don't know if I can do it. Okay. So it sounds like you have a lot of reasons why you'd like to quit. You have been successful quitting in the past. And right now you're just feeling a little bit hesitant about your ability to do it. Yeah. Where do you think we should go from here? I don't know. I, I'd like some help. I just don't know what kind of help I need. Sure. So. Well, if you'd be interested, that's something I can definitely talk to you about. There are a lot of new options that can actually help people be way more successful in their attempt at quitting. There's different medications you can try. I don't like medicine. Okay. There's also a lot of support groups and classes that you can take where you have other people to go through it with you. And sometimes just having that support can be a big part of it, especially for people like you where smoking is such a stress reliever. That sounds nice, but I'm not sure if I have the time for all that. Sure. It feels like something that would take up a lot of time and maybe not fit into your life. I wonder if we could talk about some options that might fit into your life. That would be really nice. Okay, well if you're willing then we could set up another appointment where you could come in and we could talk more about that. I would like that. That would be great. Great. Thank you. Sure. So, markedly different exchange. Right? What did you guys notice in that one? More open-ended questions. You know, a lot of times when people seem to go through the, the heart of what's involved with motivational interviewing, all those different components, um, I oftentimes hear people say, oh, gosh, I just don't have the time to do that in my practice. But if you actually look at these videos, they actually took about the same amount of time uh, to have those exchanges. And it's all in the nature of the communication that can change what direction uh, the patients move into. Um, so real quickly, I'm going to go over just a couple more pieces and then we'll wrap up. Motivational interviewing is not a way of tricking people into doing something that, that you want them to do for you. It's not a particular type of therapy. It's not easy to learn, and it's not a technique that you do where you say, I'm having trouble with this patient. I'm going to try motivational interviewing when I see them this week. It really is an approach to how you work with the patient that evolves from the get-go. So let's say that you're seeing a patient for the first time. You've reviewed their records, and you see that this is a person that's got a lot of complex condition comorbidities, and you see that they've had difficulties with compliance over the course of time. You might say, you know what, this is a person who would be good for motivational interviewing strategies. And from the very beginning of your time working with them, you'll start with that engaging process. Start building the rapport. Um, try to recognize where they are in those stages of change. You might say, oh, this person right now is in pre-contemplation. Or they may arrive already in that uh, contemplation state where they're, they're stuck 
uh, in that period of um, ambiguity. But you use this to try to help gradually move a patient toward healthier behaviors. It may take you six months or seven months to help move them into that direction, but you'll eventually be able to get them there and have more stable uh, results as a result of it. Now, somebody might say, well, gosh, that sounds like a long time, six or seven months. I need things to happen quickly. But the consequence of not doing that is things just continue to stay the same, right? If a person has been non-compliant for a period of time, there's a very good likelihood that what will happen is they'll continue to stay non-compliant. You may refer them to other clinicians to try to help out, but if the patient's not motivated to do that type of work, they're not going to be successful with those other treatment pathways. They may not be as engaged, and they may be on your panel for two years, three years, four years, still just going through the motions. So all of a sudden, yes, yeah, six or seven months of helping a patient get to that state may seem like a long time, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to not taking that type of an approach. But then lastly, once a patient's gone through the action part, they move into maintenance. And maintenance is where we continue to support them uh, staying in those healthier behavioral states, modify existing tools, and if relapse occurs, jumping back into that motivational intervening process. And again, it's dynamic in nature, so seeing what you need to do to try to help the patient uh, get back into that space. In pain settings, we can use MI to help move patients from being passive participants in their care to actively engaged. Um, it can improve treatment adherence, and it can facilitate referrals to other disciplines. You know, when you want to refer a patient to a pain psychologist, you want to refer them to physical therapy, uh, when you hear them say things like, oh, you think I'm crazy, that's why you send me to a psychologist, or physical therapy scares me, it always hurts me. Those are things that you might hear somebody say when they may be still in that contemplative state. They may recognize something needs to change, but they're not ready to make that leap. So motivational interviewing might help you have a more successful transition. And then once they arrive at that clinician's office, they'll be more engaged and ready to do that treatment and get better outcomes from that treatment process. Right? And so that brings us right to the very end of the hour. So I know there's, uh, I don't know if the room turns over right now, but I'll just be up here for questions if people have them, or you can always send me an email at my UC Davis address. But thank you guys very much.